0: This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what's up? What up, Avi? On this week's episode, we are joined by the first Indian American legislator in the state of California, Ash Kaura. Ash, welcome.
1: What's going on, guys? Thanks well, for uh, joining me here in my office. Yeah, it's great we're, to be here. We are nice so. Nice digs. Yeah, this <laughs> is
0: a nicer than our typical recording studio. In this week's episode, what we're going to do is talk to Ash Kalra about his path from the Public Defender's Office to the City Council in San Jose to the state capitol. In our deep dive segment, we're going to do a lightning round type thing about a number of laws that have recently been passed in the state of California. There have been some reforms that are really stretching our ideas about how the criminal justice system can operate, how it can be more humane. Uh, more dignified and more effective, more effective and stand people up. So we're going to talk about that. And then at the end of the show, we're going to do our things. We've known you for, uh, I've known you since I've been a public defender. Same. Uh, Yeah. So 2008 and 2009 or so. Yeah.
2: 2008. I, you were running for city council when I started in the office. I started in June in 2008. You must've been up for election that Mm -hmm. fall. And so we crossed paths in the office for about five, six months or so. Oh, we really? P- yeah, I we played softball were... together, too. Yeah. Ash was on the softball, on the freedom fighter softball That's squad, great. and so we, we had a season together that summer uh, as he was running for office.
0: How long were you at the public defender's office for? 11 years. Did you uh, work as an attorney separately from the public defender or straight in? It's the
1: only legal job I've ever had. I worked a number of different jobs over the years, but for public defender's office, I interned for about nine months before they finally hired me.
0: And And you were law school in law school. You were interning at the office. I'd already graduated. I'd
1: already graduated, and I'd passed the bar when I first walked in the door there.
0: So when you were in, you went
2: to Georgetown for law school, but you grew up in San Jose. Is that right?
1: That's right. Oak Grove High School.
2: So you grew up in San Jose. You're you're the son of Indian immigrants. Uh, When when did your parents come to the United States?
1: In '78, when I was a kid. But they went to Canada before that. Okay. So in '68, they went to Canada. I was born a few years later in Canada, and then came here when I was six years old. Oh, that's, that's an interesting twist.
2: In. So, you're you're mm-hmm. actually Canadian born, yeah. first South Asian California legislator. <laughs> it's legislator. <Yes, that's laughs> the future, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right. The melting pot. It's California. It's salad yeah. bowl, yeah. yeah. So, you're in law school at Georgetown. When does it click to you that you want to be a public defender?
1: By my last year, I knew I wanted to be a public defender, but I went to law school with the intention of doing public service. Okay. And so, since high school, I was committed to doing public service. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. But I knew that I, I was drawn to service. I wanted to be a lawyer uh, by the time I left high school because I, I, I'd seen so much in terms of the civil rights movement and Gandhi being a lawyer and just seeing different movements. And lawyers are always a part of it. Yeah. And so I, I saw lawyers as a very positive thing as opposed to some of the images or messaging we get when we're younger as, as lawyers. Not always being um, a positive path to go down, especially for the Indian community. That's what
2: I was thinking, I was thinking about because growing up as a South Asian, as an Indian American, that we used to always hear about lawyers being liars and this right. kind of this association with lawyers being unethical and having to to be shady and slippery essentially it wasn't one of the career choices that we had as an mm-hmm. option in 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 my kind of cultural community my brother broke through that barrier and went to law school and and kind of set it up for me so for you when you chose to pursue law school were there any familial or cultural issues that were hurdles for you
1: absolutely especially back then you got to remember i went to law school in 93 so at that point, there were very few Indians that were going into law school. It was just starting Yeah. Uh, at that point. Uh, I had only known one lawyer at that point in my life that was Indian. Uh, it was a family friend that was a little older, and that's it. It was an unusual path. I was the only one in our entire group of family friends that was going to law school as opposed to the sciences or computer science or uh, going to become a doctor and what have you. So it was definitely a unique path. I will say this, though, because when I was— in undergrad, I was majoring in communication. I really liked journalism. And so I think going to law school was a relief for my parents oh. <laughs> in that I didn't go and pursue oh, journalism. Journalism was <laughs> the tier below. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> uh, but then I funny. go to law school and I'm going to Georgetown. And then my parents are like, okay, well, I'm going to Georgetown. You can go. Work for a law firm or right. international law or whatever it is that they saw, you know, big elite lawyers going to going to do, and then I'm like, no, I want to be a public defender. And so once again, you know, it's like, wait a second, what's going on here? Yeah, you go to Georgetown, you want to go to, you want to go to become a public defender. You can do all these different things, but that's what I wanted to do. And and I was grateful that I was able to maintain my principles and my values because definitely when I went through law school, a lot of the people I started school with that had a lot of the same kind of social justice leanings. Went to work for firms and and kind of went down that traditional path that law school really pushes you towards.
2: So, were there any like significant family barriers that you're like that your family put up to you to go into law school or to when you decided to become a PD that they, you know that they you know argued with you or told you that they wouldn't support you or any, anything like
1: that? Never that they wouldn't support me, but there were a lot of difficult conversations. Yeah, and I, I encourage young people now, especially when I'm speaking to a group of Indian students and their parents are there and I'm really talking to the parents as much as I am to the students, is that uh, the greatest options our parents gave to us uh, is not money or a nice house or a car. It's really options. Most people in the world don't have options. The fact we have options and the ability to choose what it is we want to do with our lives is such a gift that we give to uh, our future generations, right? give to our kids. That's a blessing, Uh, and I think we should recognize it as such.
0: Your dad hangs with you still as you do Mm -hmm. your... Serving yeah. your constituents, or yeah. you're, you're out in on the on the path. Was any part of that in him when you were telling him about going to the public defender's office? Was this part of you know this interest in you doing social justice? Can you trace it to anything he's into?
1: I, I trace some of it just to, to my upbringing and spirituality, and you know, my being raised Hindu, and a lot of it really stuck with me. And, and the parts that stuck with me really are the aspects of service and not being connected or attached to material things. Hmm and doing work f- for the work's sake, doing good work, not worried about the results. Those are all things that really, really stuck with me in terms of values. So I definitely attribute a learning spirituality and Hinduism uh, in terms of some of those tenets that really stuck with me to my father, um, who I used to spend a lot of time with. You know, you know, just like so many of us have either a temple or some kind of setup in our homes. And we did in ours and um, you know, we spend every day, you know, we spend some time with them there. And so there's no doubt that that played a role. It, 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 but when I became a public defender, it still took a while, I think, for them to understand uh, what I was doing and why. And, uh, you know, especially when I was, used to say on the weekends, hey, I'm going to I'm going to the jails. Like, Don't say that. Don't <laughs> say it like that. Right. Don't say it like that. You're not. you know. Did people, anyone
2: want you to be. Uh, did anyone introduce you as a D.A. Uh, like amongst in like family parties and family yeah, circles? I mean,
1: uh, they, they some still think I was a D.A. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, even now I get introduced uh, at events or what have you. I a like, oh, former DA. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> or folks think that, I'm, and you guys get this, I know, is that someday you'll be promoted to a DA, right? Yeah. <laughs> <And so laughs> yeah or are you going to become a real lawyer? Exactly.
0: Yeah. The career path is public defender, DA, private, private attorney, attorney, then judge. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of my parents' friends, they say, oh, you know, Avi's at the DA's office. <laughs> they n- have never heard from my parents that I'm at the DA's mm-hmm. office. But I think that they project, oh, Avi's an attorney, he works at, in some sort of criminal thing. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's, he's a therefore DA. he must be a <laughs> it's DA. It's like a you know just a connection. Right? Yeah, it's not like an intentional disc. Yeah. Not I think at all.
1: that they don't know what a puppet defender is, right. first of all. And they just know you're working in the criminal courts and on T V, you know, the heroes are all the DAs ninety percent right. of the time, right? right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let
2: me ask you, Avi So, uh, Because I I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of talk about our Mm -hmm. own—we're all sitting here as three brown public defenders. And so, Avi, did you have any experiences like that when you told your parents that you wanted to go to law school? And then more specifically, uh, that you were turning down kind of the big firm life? Because you're coming out of Harvard Law. You had a big firm job kind of lined up, but you chose— a very different path coming home, coming to San Jose and being a public defender. What, what was that like in terms of your family or community circles?
0: Yeah, so descriptively, I know that like there's a lot of resistance like in the culture towards being a public defender. I haven't experienced that personally. Like it's been max supportive of what we do and max supportive of decisions to do public defense. The the pressures I always felt were internal it was about being pushed towards one thing, you know, kind of environmentally at the law school. Yep. And I remember just feeling a lot of despair reading my admissions essay. And it was about like the opportunity to get this tool to put to work for people, right? It was about getting this tool to help people with. And then it's like, what have I been doing in terms of my summers, in terms of my job interviews, in terms of my beliefs about what's valuable? That wasn't because my parents said, you have to go do intellectual property law, right? right. It was right. it was my own thing. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. When the moment came where... I had a choice. It was like, go to this firm or take the job of the public defender. I felt all the support. It was, you that's know, awesome. so I, I, just, you know, that's that's my experience. Yeah, for me, my my mom's biggest, con- my mom was all in on
2: service. We grew up in a similar uh, kind of with a similar background to you, Ash, and in terms of uh, living faith through service, mm-hmm. idealizing Gandhi. Actually, I wrote my personal statement about Gandhi. But my bi- my mom's biggest concern was health benefits. Like, yeah. and so when I got the job up in Contra Costa County's public defender's office as a, a post bar clerk, and then coming to this county, I didn't have benefits, yeah. and that was like my mom's biggest thing. Is like, because mm-hmm. for our family structures, it's all about having yeah. uh, you know, a roof over your head, having benefits for yourself and your family. And so taking that kind of sacrifice of not having health benefits to do this work, that was like the biggest thing to my mom. But then once we got past that hurdle and I got health benefits. And then my <laughs> mom, my mom got to
0: see <laughs> that was the end. That was that the was end was of it. it. Yeah, it I was pre, like, pre Affordable Care Act, <laughs> right? And then
2: uh, since then, like my mom is like my biggest fan in terms of the work that we do. It's really kind of an honor that we're doing this work and kind of exposing this work to our communities mm-hmm. because they didn't they didn't know yeah. the value of public defense, and so many people don't know. But our communities in particular yeah. don't know, and don't know how important it is for people of our backgrounds to be in the, the public service right. fields and being in the courtrooms and and changing narratives of of humanity. So it's 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 special to be a public defender, but I think it's even more special in a lot of ways to be an Indian public defender because of how few of us there are.
1: At the end of the day, th- if we want to live the values we're raised in, uh, ra- being raised in a South Asian household, I mean, these are values that I think that all of our families instill in us. And that's the interesting thing is that the, the values of selflessness and the values of, of communal thinking, thinking about others, is how we're raised. And yet, you'll see our community so much focused on all the material stuff and being and pushing you know, our kids in that direction or, or, or really putting on a pedestal those that have all this wealth and money. In it. But in, in actuality, when it comes to who we are at the core, that's not who we are, right? And so even with your mom saying, well, health care, and focusing on that makes sense. the same reason why... I think a lot of our parents push us into the sciences. That's what provides stability for them, and that's really what right. it's about. As long as you're okay and taken care of, you can do whatever you want. As long as you're stable, as long as your health is good and you can put food on the table, then do what you want. But you know, anything short of that, then they worry for that reason. And then the extreme is they just want you to show off and all that <laughs> aspect of our community, which... Obviously, is a big part of it too.
0: Yeah. So you start. You were working at the public defender in San Jose in the nineties to the mid two thousands.
1: Yeah, ninety seven to two thousand eight.
0: Were there any other Indian public defenders?
1: Not when I was there. Until a few years in, um, Sarita Shah had come in and she was there for a little while. And then um, b- b- until she got there, I was the only one. I was told that prior to me, there was an, an Indian American woman that had been in the office years prior and that I was only the second one uh, to be in the office.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I mean, so our community, there's a large Vietnamese population, mm-hmm. there's a large South Asian population. We will see these extremely diverse jury pools and to have a person who's not just a member of the criminal defense bar but somebody who's actually in court mm-hmm. all the time reflecting a part of that pool probably matters to the client population mm-hmm. to the community members. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Absolutely, particularly with the Vietnamese and Latino community, uh, it's imperative that we have representation both with the prosecutor's office as well as uh, the public defender's office that represents the community. And I think you've seen a great improvement. In fact, um, I I give great credit to Jose Villarreal who hired me in 1997. You can definitely see a a shift in the demographics in the public defender's office uh, from that point onward, and uh, you know, it was critically important, and the reality is that both in the DA's and Public Defender's Office, there are some senior attorneys that didn't necessarily like that shift in mm-hmm. demographics, right? And, and, and uh, in the DA's office, I think that you've seen the intentionality, certainly under Jeff Rosen, of trying to guess at least get more diversity in there, and it's critical mm-hmm. that we do that. It's critical that we get people that are from here, too, as much as we can. Uh, that was one of my criticisms when I was... Uh, Early on, especially in in the public defender's office, a lot of the DAs were coming here from the Midwest and all that. There was no connection they Mm -hmm. had with California, let alone San Jose. And I think that makes a big difference. And so you want a community, you want any public service and every public service, whether it's elected officials, county services, city services, to represent the community that surrounds them. And I think it's even more critical in the criminal justice system to have that life experience represented both on the defense and prosecution side.
2: So you were in the PD's office for 11 years. Um, I'm assuming you cycled through a bunch of different assignments. Uh, any particularly favorite assignments uh, between felony trials, juvenile court, uh, ancillary assignments, things like that?
1: So, so I'm a little odd this way. Uh, of the 11 years I spent, about five and a half of those years was in drug court. And I really liked it a lot. And I know there's a lot of attorneys that didn't necessarily like being in drug court. I felt I can actually do something uh, to change my clients' lives. I would spend uh, uh, every weekend in the jail, even on Prop 36 cases, visiting my clients.
0: Uh, and just for our listeners, Prop 36 <laughs> is instead of an incarceration for individual use charges, uh, treatment program and intensive probation. So people mm-hmm. could avoid lengthy incarcerations on even misdemeanor cases. Year in jail on a misdemeanor yeah. case or they could get treatment.
1: That's right. And so even though I knew they'll be back in court in a week and a half and they'll get released then, I, I still would go and make an effort to visit you know, many, if not all, of my clients. I would just put myself in their shoes and, and say, look, you know, if that was my brother, if that was me, if, you know, I would want my attorney to come see me and, and I want my attorney to really you know, walk through it with me there rather than in the courtroom. I understand time constraints, it's hard to do all the time, but I always made an effort to try to do that just so that they felt more comfortable uh, making that decision and felt comfortable with the next step, the next phase in their recovery. And there was great success we had in drug court and yeah. I had such a great relationship with the judges, Judge Cherry, Judge Cole, uh, that oftentimes when they went on vacation, uh, they would essentially tell the judge coming in, hey, just listen to what Ash recommends, because yeah, he right. knew I wasn't going to take advantage of them not being there. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the DAs in there were overly harsh or the patient officers were overly harsh. And so um, we knew what the plan was. When we saw a case, the j- judges and I would look at it, and say, okay, we know what this person needs, you know, nine times out of 10. And so that relationship was critical, and the respect was critical, but ultimately it was really uh, rewarding to me to, to see my clients um, just change their lives around I me. Mean, it was the social work aspect of it that I enjoyed as much of the trial, as the trial advocacy aspect.
0: Yeah, you can really get with people and meet them when they're in, like, deep need mm-hmm. and be there for them. Mm-hmm. It matters. I've been doing yeah. a thing lately where, you know, cause I don't like to um, like lecture my clients. Like, you know, it's uncomfortable cause we come from different backgrounds yeah. and, but you want to boost them, right? Yep. You want to, you want to support them and get them feeling like somebody cares about them That's because right. we do care about them and to actually tell them that, you know, that might be one of the rare conversations that they have from mm-hmm. somebody they don't know. But I've been making a, you know, sometimes I pick my spots But the moment I start learning about my clients' families, if they start giving me information, I take all of that and put it right back with them. Because it's like, you've now told me that there's something to care about and fight for. That's right. You know, and when you were working in drug court, possession of just a regular amount of drugs, not for distribution or whatever, was a felony. The three strikes law allowed for life sentences for people who commit simple possession as long (laughs) as they have two strike priors. Yeah. What was that like? Insane. That's crazy.
1: I imagine the pressure you have on a simple possession of, you know, three-quarters grams of cocaine or something, and this person has a 25-to-life sentence hanging over their head. And it was insane. It didn't make sense. It was immoral. Uh, it, It still is in many cases when three strikes is applied, but back then it was really to the extreme. And the DAs would still make you go through the exercise of doing the Romero motion, doing a statement of mitigation, having them plead first, which you can imagine the kind of pressure that puts on the individual client to have to plead guilty facing 25 to life and trust this guy they met. <laughs> you. That, yeah, yeah. That that we were going to be able to do everything we can um, to make sure we get those strikes stricken and trust the process. Trust the process that's failed them their entire life. Yeah. Right? And so um, I, used to t- I used to really, that was one thing that I really put a lot of effort in and, and took a lot of pride in was was uh, focusing on those strikes cases, statements of mitigation. I would visit my clients for hours on end and turn in thirty, submit thirty, forty page statements of mitigation. M- most of it just being that person's life story. Yeah, I would know everything about them. I would I would personalize them so much. I not even applied to more serious three strikes cases, and I had a decent record with it. I think because. I was able to really get the judge to connect with the client. But in drug court, it was very scary. There was one case I had where they actually, the, the judge actually sent the client away for 25 to life on a drug mm-hmm. possession wow. because he got so frustrated with them because he kept messing up and he was lying and this, that, and the other. Uh, and eventually the, the case was disposed of for something. Better than that, it, wasn't, it didn't end up being 25 to life, but he did end up going to prison for a few years, and there was an appeal, and, and, and the, the appeal was successful. And it, but it does really put into perspective the fact that even though you, get a, you know that most of those cases are going to end up uh, having the strike stricken, at, at the very least get all but one stricken so they get a, a shorter prison term, and even that is you know, pretty horrific for a, a drug possession case. There, just the fact the judge has a discretion. The judge can have a bad day. And next thing you know, the guy's gone for mm-hmm. twenty five to life. Yeah, and so um, it, it, those were very scary times.
2: Yeah, luckily those times are over now yes. because, for the most part, because now that third strike needs to be a serious or violent felony mm-hmm. because of the new Prop Thirty Six. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So on to a Prop Thirty Six to Prop thirty six. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Um, on a lighter note, so when I first started in the office in two thousand eight, I am sitting in a jury box talking to a talking to a client on a plea calendar i think it was in dv domestic violence court and i'm sitting there and i had just started in the office and i was a new ish attorney because i passed the bar in 2007 and so i'm sitting there and this client says oh you represented me before and i said no no it wasn't me He's like, no, 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 it was you. It was you. For sure it was you. And I was like, no, I don't think so. He's like, yeah, you represented me in drug court 2004. And I was like, yeah. uh, no, it wasn't me. I was still in law school in 2004. <laughs> yeah, you, you must be thinking about Ash. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Ash. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the the story of our lives, right, Avi? Just constantly <laughs> being mistaken for one another. I mean, there's yeah. countless times where now it's just Avi and I, but there's a couple other Indian PDs now um, that are that are female. But So you and I, Avi, are the two uh, South Asian PDs. And so it's basically... It's, it's been really it good for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, people will be like, hey, you did a great job on that trial. Like, yeah. thank you. <laughs> oh, remember the... Rec- That's judge once said, Avi, remember the reckless driving trial you did or the speed, speed contest? contest? Yeah, Remember the speed contest trial you did? And I was like, look, man, I have never tried a speed contest case. <laughs> I was like, "It's Sajid. He's like, "All right, well, he did a he did a good job." <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. It, it constantly happens where I, I mean, I, sometimes most of the time I don't even correct it because I'll go into a judge's chambers <laughs> and someone will say, "Hey, Mr. Singh, how's it going?" Yeah. And I'm like, oh, "Hi, Judge, how's it going?" Yeah. You know, or even on the record, sometimes they'll say, "You know, Mr. Singh," and then I'll correct it because the record needs to be corrected. But I did have a scenario recently <laughs> where I was it was one of Avi's clients family members that came up to me um i was walking on near the jail and she came up to me and um she's like hey how's it going and i'm like you know um i just you know i I feel bad saying this but i'm I'm not avi um and she's like of course i know you're not avi so i i actually felt bad i was like almost predicting that she was misidentifying me and then so i felt really bad i'm like i'm so sorry for you know for thinking that you thought i was avi and then we're continuing to talk, and she's like, you know, I just wanted to thank you. You represented uh, our other family member back in juvenile court. You know, the uh, same thing, like back in 2005. I'm like, that wasn't me. Uh, she's like, oh, you're not Ash? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's hilarious. So here oh. I was feeling really terrible for thinking that this woman was going to misidentify me for avi it turned out she was misidentifying me for you (laughs) oh my god
0: (laughs) no it's i mean i had a i had a so her son i had represented a few times and he got a serious got into a serious case and and i got i was allowed to represent him and i go in and we talk and he's like i I need you this time like before like i need (laughs) you to really be there for me like you were there for me before so yeah of course i got you you know and then so keeps talking about this like oh before you know like before like do i have are you gonna <laughs> be there for me I'm like yeah yeah for sure man for sure i got you and then we're like we're in trial like it's been it's been a long time and he's we've had these conversations the whole time It's like man he's like uh and we're like he's like in the room where you're held before you can come yeah. out so we're that's a very private the holding place cell. the holding cell where you have these intimate moments before the, you have know, the juries outside it's like you know just like when we were in juvenile court together I was like, dude, you are older than me. <laughs> <laughs> you're older than me. That was Ash man. Yeah, you talking about Ash You're not I, talking I, about I, me. I know who you're talking <laughs> about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, I, I don't uh, I take it as a big compliment to good looking guys that are kick ass lawyers. Hey, I'll yeah. take it I'll take it anytime. I'll take it on you. Yeah, I'll I'll take <laughs> it for sure. Yeah. It's,
2: I know we're running we're a little short on time, but I wanted to ask you, so you're a pup PD for eleven years. Most PDs in our office, in particular, stay. But so essentially, midway through your career, or actually kind of short of the midway point, you decide to take this leap into running for San Jose City Council. Like, what? What was the genesis of that?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I could I could have been in the public defender's office, and at this moment in time, be there ten more years and retire. Yeah. Right. Uh, but right. Exactly. You know, and it, a lot of people do that. My life's journey, my life's mission is service. Yeah, but... The greatest job to this day, uh, even after spending one year now in the assembly, I've ever had is being a public defender. So it wasn't easy. But it wasn't easy because I was leaving that job. It wasn't because the money or stability. I never chose to be a public defender for the money. And if I was going to let that be the deciding factor, I think that would have been the clearest clear sign that I had changed in, in a way that uh, that I would have lost respect for myself. And so I made a decision Based upon my ability to serve, and at that moment in time, based upon my collection of service, both as public defender, as a teacher in the neighborhoods, you know, planning commission, you name it, on and on and on, I felt that I could be a powerful and effective voice on the city council. So I ran uh, and won, and took you know, about a 60 percent 60, pay cut. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, yeah, wow. and and went to the city council. And, uh, even now as a, as an assembly member, I'm probably getting paid half of what I would get paid up there and I get no pension and all that stuff, but that's okay because, you know, it's not about me. If it was just about me doing a job I love and getting paid relatively well for it and, and having the ability to take vacations and do all the stuff I was doing, then I would have stayed, but it's never been about me. And so I really tried to really focus on what I could be doing with my time in my life uh, kind of like the evaluation you did in terms of your career right i mean and, and when you're trying to decide what to do like at some di- point you have to realize okay um i don't want to go to a law firm, I want to do this or i don't want do this and and the, re- the way you get there really is is a self evaluation uh, of what you're meant to be doing as well as what you get joy out of and I get a lot of joy out of what I do I get a lot of joy out of the work that I do, and you know, i wouldn't have made any decision differently any major decision that is. So awesome. is this
2: is this the uh, the path you know this path of government service that you're on now from San Jose City Council to now the State Assembly, is this the path you kind of foresee for yourself moving forward? Do you see public defense in your cards like in the future again? Like what what where do you see yourself kind of moving moving on to? I can always
1: see myself going back to the public defender's office. I, I loved it there, so that's always something that I, I think I could do without hesitation. Right now, uh, just finishing up my first year, yeah. I'm going to see how this political thing goes and el- elected office goes. It's definitely challenging doing it in a way that I want to do it uh, because there are certainly a lot of obstacles and special interests that make it very difficult. But I think all things considered, I had a successful year. I think I had, I had a meaningful eight years on the city council advocating uh, for the, those that needed a voice, right? I mean, I think that, that same core of why I became a puppet defender still drives me. And so if, as long as I'm able to add something to the dialogue, you know, as long as I'm able to actually get legislation uh, passed and, and work on good policies for the greater community that oftentimes is ignored and overlooked, you know, that is meaningful to me. I don't need to have a title next to my name. If there's something that comes up tomorrow where I think I can do something that will be even more impactful or maybe impactful in a different way that I feel is right at that moment, then I'll go do that.
0: I think that's a great way to lead into our next subject. So let's uh, take a quick break and then we will talk about some legislation in our next segment. right we're back and this week's deep dive what we wanted to do is talk to ash about uh, some big changes that have happened in the state of california we have had this criminal justice system it's been really rigid it's been harmful to the community in all kinds of ways that make sense in some ways that you really have to think about and then over the past few years there have been propositions passed by the voters and now and legislation also but there was a whole bunch of legislation passed in the state of California to improve this criminal justice system, to make it more just and to make it more rehabilitative. And we wanted to talk to Ash about the changes. We wanted to share some of our thoughts about it. And also, you know, if you're in another state, there's so much possibility. Uh, and that was the, you know, there's a lot of place room for hope and criminal justice reform and it, and it can happen at the state level. Mm -hmm. It can, even if things are not working federally, it can happen at the state level. So federalism you know that's, that's the name right. of the game. So, Sajid, do you want to kick us off with some? Yeah, of the, I mean, the, uh,
2: the, there's this. I mean, on your watch, uh, Ash, like there's been this flurry of criminal justice reform. A lot of things that I thought would I would never see. I mean, you referenced this when we first started, like when you were a PD in the mid '90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're dealing with three strikes, and you're dealing with all these draconian laws. And one of them was the sex offender registry. Um, the fact that anyone convicted of any sort of sex offense whether it was a misdemeanor all the way up to a rape um, or something like a sexual assault, uh, would have to register for the rest of their lives. But now in California, we have a tiered registry that just passed in the legislature. Can you talk about that and how meaningful that is for you as a former public defender?
1: Uh, It's about time I remember those cases. I remember the uh, less serious of those cases where the biggest penalty some of our clients face is that registration right, and it doesn't make sense, the one-size-fits-all doesn't make sense, it doesn't make us safer. You want the real predator to be highlighted uh, of those that are registering, and not have it just lumped up with hundreds of others that have these minor um, uh, infractions, convictions, what have you, but it took a while to get the legislature there, right, because what's happened, the reason why we have the laws that we do that are so draconian up until very recently, in the last few years, is because it's always easy to be tough on crime it's much and on more sex t- offenders
2: in particular, in
1: particular on sex offenders, and even when you look at some of the more recent moves that have relaxed some of the kind of mandatory minimums what have you, oftentimes the exception is except for sex offenses because yeah. that's the third rail, like well, you can't touch sex offenses because you know everybody wants them to hang, but and rea- an
0: example of that is it's a felony for a sex offender to sell weed,
1: yeah exactly which which makes no sense but it's because in order to get some of those laws that relax some of the prior mistakes in terms of more aggressive criminal jurisprudence you you have to be able to cut aside the sex offenders so this was a big big deal for yeah. us to be able to do this and it was a great year for criminal justice that's one example of many Uh, bills that we passed that the governor signed. And the governor, i got to give him credit, he's going out with a bang when it comes to really sticking to his principles in fixing a broken criminal justice system. Uh, Part of it was spurred by the fact uh, that we had the largest incarceration rate in the free world, and we were busting at the seams and sending inmates out of state, and uh, the Supreme Court of the state ordered uh, some of the actions because... Uh, we couldn't provide the health provide care uh, for the inmates as required. And so that was the initial kind of push. But Governor Brown has really been on point when it comes to supporting, not just signing these bills. You got to remember, behind the scenes, he's supporting these efforts. Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of the behind the scenes, the work that's being done by a number of the legislators. Um, I, I was pushing very strong on a number of these bills. I was actually jockeying, so this is a term where if you have a Senate bill, for example, and in this case it was uh, SB 180, which repealed the three-year sentence enhancements. the Rise Act. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I was the floor manager on the assembly, also called jockeying the bill. What that means, basically, is that you know it's a Senate bill, it comes over, we gotta get the assembly votes, I take primary responsibility in working with the senator to make sure we have the votes. Hmm. And so I did that with that bill. I was essentially one of the floor managers on the other bill, which is the Bradford bill, uh, which allows for discretion in the imposition of firearm so arm enhancements. Two yeah. huge. Oh yeah.
2: So let's talk about those for a second, yeah. just to give some background. SB one eighty is the is the legislation that repeals these drug sales priors. So in our practice as public defenders, we would see our clients. Uh, be charged with these drug sales priors. So anytime a low-level drug offender uh, sold a little bit of methamphetamine or cocaine to to a neighborhood person or to a co- undercover mm-hmm. cop, or, or they possessed an amount that was in t- possessed with the intent to sell, uh, then that if they were convicted of that offense, they would essentially be triggering a three-year prior uh, that could be added. To any additional, I'm sorry, to any future sentence if they were yep. uh, caught for sales again, and essentially also created the cycle where if you sold once, there was an understanding that you were automatically selling every time you possessed drugs right. any time in the future. And so this law got rid of those three-year sales priors, which have been um, used by DAs for so long to kind of twist our clients' arms into these mm-hmm. unwieldy lengthy incarceration terms
0: yeah right. yeah we had a we had a case with over 50 years of exposure and sales priors right and they never Same. go away no uh no. well know, now so they're gone yeah now they're gone <laughs> now they're yes. gone forever right it's but you know if something mm-hmm. if a power is being used in a way that's corrosive to the plea bargaining system then there's possible that the legislature or the people are going to mm-hmm. take that power away right and so if you had it was just so frustrating if i had a guy with you know two grams of Uh, methamphetamine on him but then he's got two sales priors. He can take probation and he can get another sales. Yeah. Right? Or, and he can do something like Prop 36, you know, some sort of treatment court or he can go to trial and face nine years. That's right. And it's like, is that the system that we want? You know, for I mean, as people, it's just common sense people. Is that the system we want for settling out uh, cases or the pressures we want anybody to experience?
1: This one was a difficult one because it took away the enhancement altogether, mm. as opposed to the uh, Bradford bill regarding uh, firearm enhancements, uh, that just gave discretion to judges. That was also a very heavy lift. We didn't. Yeah. Neither of these bills. We didn't. We didn't get enough votes on the first round. We had to go back again to try to get enough votes to pass. And we only need 41, a simple majority. But you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, Democrats that uh, still hold to that tough-on-crime mantra. Uh, and so it's unfortunate, but we were able to get uh, a majority vote on that. We weren't able to get bill reform done, which um, yeah. you know is a, still a heavy lift. But I'm confident in your head,
0: Ash. When you so you you do this for a living, right? Jockeying or persuading people on legislation. How do people who listen to this who want to do some criminal justice reform? How do you think is you can effectively respond to just tough on crime means more? It means more punishment, more sentences, more minimums. Uh, you know, just what are your thoughts about that?
1: Right now is probably the best time in, in recent memory uh, where the pendulum, so to speak, has swung a, a different direction in terms of criminal justice. So I, I think this is the time to really make the argument not just to Democrats but to Republicans too. And there are some of these bills where we actually got bipartisan votes uh, because of the amount of money we're spending on the justice system, and that's where you can get a lot of the more conservative Democrats and some of the Republicans, is that, look, we're we're wasting money. We're throwing money down the toilet where we're not gonna get some of those elected leaders or politicians based upon the, the human loss, but you might be able to get them on the financial aspects of it, and the fact it doesn't make us any safer. And yeah. so you know it's one thing that our you know senator used to say when she was a DA and Attorney General Kamala Harris, you know, it's not about being tough on crime or soft on crime, it's about being smart on crime. And I think that's a good approach for a lot of elected officials is to really get to the facts. And I think there's an opportunity here where facts can outweigh emotion. And I think especially with what's going on nationally where we're starting to see what happens when you allow facts or those that pursue facts to be neglected. Uh, I I think that you see what we see nationally. There is a moment. Look, I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter attorney in Philadelphia just became the DA. So th- you know, th- just think about that for a second. Yeah. Where yeah. we are, right? And so there's an opportunity right now. I would suggest.
0: Shout so out to Larry Krasner.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's it's amazing. Come on the pod. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing, <laughs> right? And uh, I think this is the time. This is the time uh, to do it. I think that uh, you definitely want to make sure that you organize, organize, organize. We had really great organizations that uh, were lobbying in Sacramento you know Common was up there you know meeting with a lot of these more moderate Democrats common the, the rapper common the rapper yeah, yeah. did a, you know the night before um a lot of this was coming up to vote you know he did a free concert you know, on C- Capitol Hill or on do you think C-
0: that a podcast <laughs> would help move juice any sort of bills well, I think we'll if Common came on here that'd be cool. <laughs> no, I mean if, you know, we come up with the mics to Sack, you know, do you think we can sure. get any
1: Look, it, it, it it's possible. A I mean, you t- a free podcast. No, they could come, it'll Avi,
0: be a free show.
2: One of the things yeah. I, one of the things you told me, one of the things you told me a few months back, actually it was at the South Asian Bar Association uh, Bar Association event. And I was complaining to you about this this issue with um ages for uh, age eligibility for Department of Juvenile Justice it's commitments. Crazy. But we we don't have to get even get to the specifics. But yep. I was complaining to you about this issue, and you're like, "Let's just go change the law." Yeah. Let, let's let in like for a long time, we as public defenders or just community members in general would c- complain about issues in our communities, in a, specifically with the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. and didn't necessarily feel like we had an outlet. Yeah. But here we are, literally like yeah. sitting with an assembly person. We can contact you or an assembly person anytime and present to you our experiences as um, efficiently. As ever, I mean, we've never had this kind of direct line yeah. of communication with our legislatures where we can literally present law. That's where Prop 57 right. uh, uh, originated from too. It was yeah. it was from community members that just kind of started writing and started advocating, and then it now it's new law. Um, well, it's so not even
1: uh, it's not even having the ability to have the ear of legislators. I think that over the years, a lot of the advocates got tired because it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Not only do you have our ear, but you can actually get bills passed that are in the favor of the accused uh, in a relatively expeditious way, right? I mean, yeah, it's happening right. in a matter of a couple of years. I mean, this year was the most successful, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you can find a more successful year in terms of the legislature passing bills. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's great to be up there as a foreign public defender because I, I think that I have a, a lot of credibility with our colleagues, and so a lot of them come to me when they ask, about the, what's awesome. this bill about? What's that bill about? Right. Yeah. And even on the floor, I'm able to get them to yes because i can tell them what really happens right on the ground with bail reform what really happens with individuals i mean and and, you know these
2: uh, these these changes are are groundbreaking i mean in terms of in terms of our national mass incarceration problem so there's the there's the youthful offender parole which passed Mm -hmm. in previous years but that so basically giving uh, essentially special parole consideration for offenders that committed serious or violent Uh, essentially serious felonies um that were under the age of um that were previously under the age of 23 now it's been expanded to those that were under the age of 25 now we have a a grant of elderly parole uh, for people that have served at least 25 years in prison which is kind of what Avi and I talked about when OJ got paroled we were talking about Whether or not there should be provisions in the law that permitted for the early release of the elderly Mm. for both public safety and just kind of humanitarian reasons. And then we talked about uh, there no longer being juvenile uh, life without parole. So giving the opportunity for those uh, who were under the age of 18 to uh, who were sentenced to. Due to life without parole to get parole consideration after 25 years, the firearms enhancements, yeah. which were so set in stone. Um, I'm shocked that that legislation yeah. passed right. and now gives discretion to judges to impose um, alternative terms as opposed to the full uh, 10 or 20 year terms yeah. that are imposed with, with firearm enhancements. I mean, yeah, when we you, talk about peeling back these yeah. the infrastructure of our mass incarceration system, you, Osh, and the legislatures this year have essentially cut the, a lot of those things out from, you know, cut the legs uh, out from under that system and are really peeling it back. And I'm just so excited for what's to come because yeah. these are huge chunks. And
0: the big ones about judicial discretion as practitioners, as people who are in the courtroom, you were practicing in Romero, which is trusting a judge to make a call. We have the system, and somebody's going to have to have power to make decisions. And if you have a robbery of a liquor store where the person has a gun in their hand doesn't shoot it doesn't even point it at anybody that's a 12 year minimum case yeah and nobody can do anything about it really
2: yep. and those it's numbers insane. were th- those numbers essentially forced our clients into really uh, you, difficult plea bargains they had no leverage
0: you have PTSD you have yep. a traumatic foster care experience you're armed by somebody older than you and sent yep. in to do something None of it matters. Nope. And so the legislature, by saying, if a judge finds it's in the interest of justice, that it just creates an opportunity for advocacy to mean something. To for translate. context
2: to finally matter as opposed to just the conduct. Absolutely.
0: So I wanted to ask you, Ash,
2: a couple questions. One is, uh, out of all this legislation, we've talked about what, what are you most proud of? Like, uh, what are you most excited about um, in terms of what's passed or what's—, what's uh, What's changed, especially given the context of you being a former PD? I'm
1: very proud of the criminal justice bills as a whole. Uh, all of them were heavy lifts, some more than others, but I'm glad I was part of kind of the core team to get them passed. Uh, I, I, In terms of the bills, uh, I did actually have a, a jury selection bill that was passed, uh, AB 1541, that I worked closely with the Public Defender's Office, with Michael Ogle and others here in Santa Clara County, uh, just to give more ability for both prosecutors and defense attorneys to be able to do a more thorough questioning process uh, during jury selection. I think all in all, there, there is a common thread to my bills that I'm proud of, and I think they all speak to those that are struggling in our community those that are struggling and trying to find a way to help lift them up. And so whether it's those that are aging, um, those that are older, whether it's an environmental cause, renters, uh, there's a common link that really, yeah. uh, I think, speaks to the, the bigger issues that we have that lead one into the criminal justice system, right? Which is, which is the reason why I went into elected office to begin with is that I wanted to do whatever I could to keep more clients from ending up on your doorstep. Can I,
2: so one last question before we finish up, I know we're running short on time, but I I, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. So what's the next frontier of criminal justice reform in the state legislature? I had some ideas. One is changing parameters of who, of how long uh, juveniles can be sent to the Department of Juvenile Justice. Right now, the age cap is 23. And so essentially, perhaps even extending that to 25 or even older so that uh, juvenile offenders that um, are that are accused of serious mm. or violent crimes, that courts feel like they have more flexibility to keep uh, juvenile offenders in, in juvenile facilities for longer. Other ideas that I had was wobbler robberies and wobbler drug sales offenses. And what wobblers are are crimes that can be charged as misdemeanors or felonies. And, Ash, you know this and from your experience in drug court, how many of our clients yeah. who are drug addicts mm-hmm. who are selling meth or yep. cocaine to support their habits, they're not, you know, they're not uh scarface they're not you know they're not uh big big pig drug dealers but they're essentially there's (laughs) uh they're selling dope to support their habits and but then they get saddled with these felony convictions for sales i'd essentially like i'd like the possibility that there could be a scenario where uh a judge or a da could see those offenses and we would bring them to light as a public defender and say hey this doesn't merit a felony. This is a low-level offender who's selling drugs to support their habit. They're essentially an addict, so let's give them a misdemeanor drug sales offense um, with certain parameters. Um, Avi, do you have any other ideas?
0: Well, I just think that we have to look at probation ineligibilities, and we have to look at some of our probation eligi- ineligibilities in California are for drug offenders. Yeah, And it's just it's totally a remnant of the war on drugs, right? And I know it's still happening, but... Saja Sajid just said there's the user person who's selling to support the habit the person needs treatment and so that's a place that I see is ripe for attack personally mm-hmm. you know we just got to keep fighting if if you're listening uh fans of the aider nation send us your ideas <laughs> and we will we will send them to yeah. every we'll we'll shout them out from the rooftops yeah um
1: Send them my way for certain. Uh, of course, we still have to finish bail reform. Yeah, uh, It was made what's called a two-year bill, so it's going to come up again uh, when we get back. And uh, we r- unfortunately, we're a few votes short, uh, which is a shame, but um, we're getting close. And I think my voice, being able to talk about the real-life experience, of what happens in the courthouse, because we do have former sheriffs and law enforcement there that speak from their perspective, and so for the first time to be able to at least have a voice that can speak to the other perspective while on the floor of the assembly, let alone in private conversations with my colleagues to really tr- talk to them about why this is important. But I, I, I agree, especially on the drug stuff, and in particular, given the opioid crisis, there may be an opportunity to talk, especially about the wobbler, uh, to give opportunities to give even more discretion in the drug courts to really try to heal some of these folks that right, are ending yeah. up in the system.
0: Yeah, what we're doing now hasn't been working, but we're doing better. Oh, yeah. So that's the the long road. All right, well, why don't we uh, take a quick break, and then we come back, we will do our things. we are back it's just me sajid and uvi who you'll meet in a moment yeah uh assembly member ash Kalra had to go to an event and so we're gonna finish up this episode with our things sajid why don't you go ahead so my first thing is that we have uh my office's interns uh uvi
2: singh who's with me uh today he's hanging out with us he um say what's up uvi
1: Hey, how's it going? <laughs> thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, of course. So he's been here, uh, watching us record. Uh, he's a prospective law student, and uh, so I wanted him a chance to meet some Brown public defenders and Ash, myself, and Avi. So uh, thanks, Uvi, for hanging out with us. That's one thing. Uh, second thing, Avi, you and I were thinking about sharing um, some stories of of like of clients as as our things for today. Unfortunately, Ash couldn't stick around to share it with us. But so I was thinking I had a recent uh, client last year my first homicide uh, trial client, and I, what prompted me to remember him was that I was wearing the suit jacket earlier, uh, earlier this week or last week, and I reached in, and I had a pack of Lifesavers in the pocket. Mm. And so I was like, you know, I was thinking about the Lifesavers, and the reason I had the pack of Lifesavers is because when, when this client and I were in trial last year, um, he was, uh, if you know, Avi, you know this, that our clients get woken up really early at the jail. Uh, to come to court. So they have to be in court at 8.30. They get woken up at like 6 o'clock, 6.30, sometimes earlier, uh, just to kind of get them processed and get them over to the jail. So by the time our clients are in trial and they're sitting in court all day from 9 o'clock to 5 p.m. essentially, they get really tired. And they get food in the morning. They get breakfast. They get lunch on the lunch break. But they don't get real access to coffee. Um, So I had asked this. This client was telling me that he was feeling pretty tired during the trial. And I had to ask the courtroom deputy if I could give him some coffee. And the courtroom deputy was like, no, I can't give him coffee. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a safety issue. And so I was like, what about, you know, and then my client asked me, he's like, what about some candy? Because there's like courtroom candy. And he's like, yeah. And so the deputy's like, yeah, you can give him some candy. So every day during the trial, I would, uh, when I would walk over to court, there's this hot dog vendor that's on uh, Heading Street uh, right outside our courthouse. And so I would buy a pack of Lifesavers and then during the trial I would sit with my client um, and then he'd kind of nudge me with his elbow when he wanted some lifesavers and then I'd reach into my pocket and then I'd peel out a couple of these hard candy lifesavers. And the deputy said I could only give him hard candy for some reason. And so then I would peel out these lifesavers and that, that's how it went through the whole trial was this really intimate connected moment or moments with my client through the form of lifesavers. And so then, like I said, last week uh, when I reached into this pocket I found this kind of old pack of lifesavers from that trial last year, and it just made me think of Mr. Mr. Gonzalez, as my client's name, and so that's my that's my thing.
0: I've been thinking a lot about early experiences with clients. The bar exam results just came out for the last few months. I've been working with these law school graduates to represent clients, and they've been doing this really inspirational advocacy, all of them. So I was kind of reflecting on my own experiences and wanted to share something. So uh, when I was a law student, I worked at a death penalty appeals office after my first year of law school. And I was just doing the sort of work that a person would give to a law clerk, like a high volume of documents to review, to find the needle in the haystack, or you know, determine there are no needles, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the cases they gave me was for this gentleman on death row. They needed to look into some aspect of his medical history. And so I went through all of his social history Uh, that was prepared for the death penalty case, for the trial, because this is now appeal. He's now been condemned, right? convicted and sentenced to death. And so reviewing all of the boxes, right? Looking through the police reports, looking through his foster care records, you know, or other sort of uh, youth intervention records, and, like, getting to know everything about this person. And so they wound up uh, letting me go visit him at, at San Quentin State Prison in California, I went with a supervisor, and my job was very limited. You're gonna go over the HIPAA waiver form, the health information waiver form, and you're gonna have him sign a release. Like that was my yeah, that was my task. So I'd reviewed all the records, I thought about everything in a way that UV you're gonna be doing, you know, soon enough. And so I, I we get through the metal detector, and my supervisor she gets stuck at the metal detector. There's something happening, you know, so she's got to go change or whatever. So that she said, just go ahead, just go ahead and uh when you get up there just just start on the medical paperwork so okay i'll go do it so i um i go on ahead this is my first this is the first person i've ever met in a jail and it's at death row i have to go through all these different gates and i say i'm here to meet my guy and i say his name and his first name is floyd i'm here to meet floyd and they say he's ready for you so they send me through more gates and then i finally get to this area where uh, he's in the jail cell and his hands are unchackled and before they open the gate, they have him put his hands beho- out of the sh- out of the door, and they shackle him. And then they open the gate and they let me in, and then they close the gate and then he unshackle him. Okay. You know, there's like so all these security procedures, and I say, Floyd, I'm Avi, I'm here to help you. Dorothy sent, you know, Dorothy's down at metal. He's like, okay, and and we hug. And It's like I've oh, learned wow. all about this guy, you know, and. And, you know, he's like, okay. And so we sit down and we're smiling and I'm talking about these medical records and I'm explaining the HIPAA waiver form. And then the correctional officer runs in and says, who are you here to see? And I say, I'm here to see Floyd and his last name. And the guy says, I'm not Floyd. <laughs> 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 and uh, and so they took that guy out of there, did the... <laughs> did but the you shared sure this moment, you know his name? shackle him, take him out. Do you know that And man's then name they brought my client out. I have, I have no idea. But you you or shared a moment with him no, though. I have no idea. Yeah. And he was like, you were talking about Dorothy. I wouldn't know who you were talking about. You called me Floyd. I just figured to go with it. <laughs> I mean, he was so like stuck, right? That somebody right. was coming to see him. But it was definitely like I felt like I knew everything about this person. Right. when I met him. And I felt his, you know, I have no idea who that person is, but there was like all of this uh humanity in that moment of meeting my first you know, incarcerated clients. So I, I just, you know, I think about these. Like it was such such a minor intervention, right, or interaction as a l- young future lawyer. Did um, you hug Floyd? No, <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. I was like, hey man, I just talked to some other guy, and we had a, <laughs> you know, we laughed about it. But um, so that's my thing. Just you know, those experiences. If you're a young public defender, future public defender, law student, college student, chase those things and uh, it get w- close. They were very meaningful for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, everybody, thank you for listening to Aider and a Better. We will talk to you next time. Peace.